Well, take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. As you're turning there, I want to remind you, a number of weeks ago, we began the new year by looking at the mission of the church. Who are we as a church? What are we to be? What are we to do? What are we to prioritize? And we saw from Colossians 1 that we exist to proclaim Christ and admonish every man so that we may be complete in Christ. And then the week after that, we saw the glory of Christ from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, that Jesus is God, he is creator, he is sustainer, he is Lord, he is preeminent, and he is Savior. Just a magnificent Savior that we are here to worship. And then last week, you'll remember, we looked into the Word of God, and we talked about the glory of, do you remember? Somebody remind me, I forgot. Thank you, the Word of God. Thank you, my sweet wife. Psalm 119, the glory of the Word of God, the power of the Word and the clarity of the Word and the trustworthiness of the Word. Today, I have been working on this sermon for a long time. And I have been waiting for a time to get this out, and here it is. It is the glory of prayer, the glory of prayer. Next week, we're going to look at the glory of heaven, and then when we get into February, we'll go back into the book of James and continue there. Second Chronicles 20, I'm going to preach on the duty, the privilege, and the necessity of corporate prayer. The story is told in the 1800s of five young university students who were spending a Sunday in London, London, England, and they wanted to hear the very famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. They'd heard of Spurgeon, and they wanted to hear him preach, and so they go to the church, and they get there early in the afternoon, and the doors are locked. It's, it's early. It's before the church service was to begin. And when they're waiting outside, the door opens, and there's a young man who greets them, and the young man said, gentlemen, would you like me to show you around the building? Would you like to see the heating plant of the church? Well, the five university students didn't want to see the heating plant of the church. It was a hot day in July in London, but they didn't want to be... Uh, They didn't want to offend the man, so they consented and said, sure, show us the heating plant. Well, as they went into the building and they slowly and quietly walked around, they went down a staircase and the door was quietly opened into a room and the guide, the young man, whispered and said, here is our heating plant. It's what gives power and life and heat to our church. And the five young men, as that door was opened, they were surprised when they saw 700 people bowing in prayer. They were bowing in prayer, begging God and seeking for a blessing on the church service and on the preaching of the Word of God that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. And then he slowly closed the door, and the gentleman who had let them in and gave them the tour, he then proceeded to introduce himself, and he said, My name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He believed in prayer. The church 
believed in prayer. I mean, think about it. This is the power and the life and the heat of our church seeking God together in prayer. I love that. What is it that gives power? What is it that gives life? What is it that gives heat to a local church? What's the energy? What's the power? What is the powerhouse of the church? And it's none other than calling upon God in prayer. I suppose a good question that we ought to ask ourselves individually and even ask ourselves corporately as a church is, do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? We do a lot of ministry. We have a lot of programs. We have a lot of things that we do. We're busy. We're active. We have a lot of things that are going on here. But do we really trust God or do we trust ourselves? Do we trust in the power of God or do we trust in our own abilities or our own resources to accomplish what is supernatural and what is divine and what is lasting? I think the real answer to these questions, if I can say it and it convicts all of us, the real answer to these questions is evidenced by your prayer life. Do we trust God? Do we really rely on God? Do do we really trust in the power of God? And, And we want to raise our hand and say, yes, we do. And I think a very legitimate barometer, a good, healthy way to measure the legitimacy of our desire is, well, show it by your prayer life. Because, church family, we've said it before, I say it frequently on Wednesday night, and I want to remind myself and remind you that we as a church must seek the Lord. We, we cannot not seek the Lord. We have to seek God. And as I was reading and praying and thinking about this sermon and percolating it in my mind and my heart and waiting for an occasion to preach this, my heart has gone to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This, this is an amazing chapter, and you got the preparation for worship email, and no doubt you've read this, you've prepared well, you probably know where I'm going in this chapter. But these are four amazing chapters of 2 Chronicles, chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. It's all about the life and kingship of a guy named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah. He's a good man. He's a good man. He's a good king. And he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And you and I read about him and we can learn from him. Because after all, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the Old Testament stories happened as examples for us. And Romans 15 tells us the same as well. And what we're going to see today as we go to this chapter is we are going to learn that desperate times demand desperate prayer. Now, couldn't we all agree we are living in pretty desperate times? We are living in severe times. We are living in crazy times. We are living in desperate, dark, depraved, evil, troublesome times. Not just locally, not just here in our city, not just in our nation, but globally. Globally. And the question 
When you and I might look around and think, what do we do? I mean, is there any hope? How how are we going to change the world? How are we going to change the city? How are we going to change the nation? What's going to happen? Is that our job? What is our calling? What are we to do? What do we do and how do we live in such desperate times? Well, from our chapter, desperate times demand desperate prayer. And I want to give you an outline, and we're going to work through this as we work through the chapter. I'm going to spend a good bit of time on the opening few verses, and then we're going to sort of fly through and summarize much of the rest of the account. It's just such a wonderful chapter. But I want to show you that severe days demand seeking God, or desperate days demand desperate prayer. Let me give you the outline, and then we're going to walk, walk through these three headings together. If you're taking notes, number one, a great problem demands prayer. A great problem demands prayer. Now, write that down, and you'll need to remember that because tonight, tomorrow, this week, this year, something in your life is going to come up where there's going to be a great problem, and you're going to think, Lord, this is too much for me. A great problem demands prayer. A second heading that I want to show you is that a great leader calls for prayer. A great leader calls for prayer. We're going to see that from Jehoshaphat. And then third, I want to show you a great God answers prayer. I love, I love that. Boys and girls, never forget that. The God who made you and the God who knows everything about you, he hears and he answers Prayer. So let's walk through this together in Second Chronicles 20. I hope you have your Bible open because we're going to read a little bit and then I'm going to preach on it and then we're going to read a little bit more and then I'll preach on it. So we're just going to walk through this together. Follow with me as I begin Second Chronicles 20 beginning in verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon together with some of the Munites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, and Gedi. Now here's what's going on. Jehoshaphat is the king, reigning in the city of Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom of Judah, And a prophet, a message, a word, a report comes to the king, and they say, King, there are three nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites, that's an Arabian tribal group living in Edom, and they're launching a coalition, they're launching an attack against us and against you, Jehoshaphat. And they're coming against Judah. They're coming to make war, verse 1 ends, against Jehoshaphat. And guess what? They're right down the road. Now, many of you have been to Israel. And you can be in Jerusalem, and on the Mount of Olives, on a clear day, you can look to the southeast, and you can see on a clear day the glisten of the Dead Sea. There's a city in the northern part of the Dead Sea called En Gedi. It's 25 miles away. It's not very far. It's just up the desert road. And then you wind up to the south of Jerusalem, just 25 miles. These three nations, 
are 25 miles away. It's huge. It's big. They're coming with a mission. And they are coming up the desert road. And you and I need to remember a great problem demands prayer. Because what kind of a problem is this right here in our text? Jot this down. Number one, it's unexpected. And I don't know for sure what's happening in your life or what will happen in your life. But my guess is that at some point for me and you, there's going to be something unexpected. Way bigger than you can handle. This problem is unexpected. Number two, this problem is too big for me. Ah, I can't do this. This is is gonna drown me. It's gonna destroy me. How am I gonna survive this? Often we might say, I can't handle it. It's unexpected. It's too big for me. And number three, it's, it's close. It's hitting close to home. I mean, it's not just something going on around the world. It's happening in my family or at my job or with your finances or whatever it might be. It's close. And number four, this problem is hostile. They're not coming to just make a chat and sit down for coffee. They're coming for war. They're coming to destroy you, Jehoshaphat, and the people of Judah. They are coming with hostile attitudes. A great problem demands prayer. I'm going to turn to a couple of scriptures here in the book of Acts. I want to show you this. It reminds me of Acts chapter 4. Remember when Peter and John are arrested in the city of Jerusalem They're preaching the gospel. In verse 23, when Peter and John had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when the church heard this, get this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. And they said, oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now they pray for truly in the city there is gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. I mean, the the, the Jewish leaders commanded them, we tell you to speak no more in the name of Jesus. They're released. They go back to the church, they pray, and they call upon God. Well, then you turn a few pages to Acts chapter 12. Peter is put in jail again. He's put in jail again in Acts chapter 12, probably with the intention to kill him. He's arrested in verse 5. He's kept in prison. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. That's Acts 12 verse 5. Well, then we get to verse 6. On the very night that Herod was going to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. (laughs) This is so cool. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. 
And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that they were expecting. And then he goes to the house of Mary, where the church had gathered together. Verse 12 ends. And they were praying. Our leader's in jail. We got to pray. They want to put him to death. And they were praying. And then later on in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is on his missionary journey and he's leaving the city of Miletus. And the Ephesian elders, they hear that they will not see Paul again. And they began to weep. And they embraced Paul, and they were grieving that Paul said he would not be seen by them. And so they called upon God. They knelt down and they prayed together. What's the point? When there's a great problem, what happens? The people of God gather. Because a great problem demands prayer. You and I might not have a coalition of nations coming against you in your life. But we've got illnesses. We have those caught in the trap of sin patterns. We have false gospels that are being spread all around us. We've got fervent evangelism efforts that we are partaking in. We have threats from unbelievers. And that, no doubt, will increase as days go on. There are laws and ordinances that are against us and against the preaching and against the truth and against Christ. And we are seeking, 2 Corinthians says, to destroy strongholds. We have far more than just three nations coming against us. We've got Satan and the minions of hell coming against us. A great problem demands prayer. Desperate times demand desperate prayer. Number two, if you're following with me, we need to ask the question, well, what happens now? Here's the second heading that I want to give you in the sermon. Not just first, a great problem demands prayer. Now, number two, a great leader calls for prayer. Look at what Jehoshaphat does. I'm back in 2 Chronicles 20. Follow with me now in verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now, pause right there. I kind of like that because I can relate to that. And you can too. Because we are tempted to fear. We are tempted to worry. We are often given to anxiety. And when we hear something happening or about to happen, we get afraid. Jehoshaphat, verse 3, was afraid. In the Hebrew, there's a way of expressing a verbal form which signifies immediate action. For example, Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Immediate, it happened. That's the verbal form right here in verse 3. Here's why I say it. When Jehoshaphat was afraid, what did he do? He turned his attention to seek. 
the Lord. What did he immediately do? He began to fear. He began to be afraid. He began to be worried and anxious. He turned his attention to seek the Lord, verse 3, and he proclaims a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathers together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. A great leader calls for prayer. Jesus modeled this, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is leading the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden, Jesus says, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Remember that? I mean, he calls them to pray. Paul does that all over the New Testament. He calls the believers and he calls churches to pray. Luke 11, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says, when you pray, say this. Verse 3, Jehoshaphat hears what's going on. There's a coalition of nations. He's afraid. He turns his attention to seek the Lord. He goes after the Lord in fervent prayer. He proclaims a fast. Don't eat. Don't eat. Nobody eat. We need to call upon God in desperation. And there's a key word. Do you see the key word? It's repeated a number of times in verses 3 and 4. Seek the Lord. Verse 4, seek help from the Lord. End of verse 4, they come from all the cities to seek the Lord. Oh, that we would have this kind of a leader over our nation. We need to seek the Lord. Moses did this. Joshua did this. David did this. Nehemiah did this. Jesus did this. What does it mean to seek the Lord? That's the the logical question. What, What does it mean to seek the Lord? Here's what it means. It is a desperate coming to God. It is a desperate coming to God. Seeking God is never passive. They are searching for God. We are searching out the word of God to see what he requires. And we are seeking the face desperately of God in prayer. It's like, I know there's a hidden treasure hidden. And I want to find it. And I want to search. And I want to dig until I find. It's like when the kids play hide and go seek, they know there's someone hiding. And they're going to search Until they find him. Seeking God in the Hebrew includes three ideas. And I want you to get this. Number one, seeking God includes earnestness. We have to be earnest. It means with passion. It means with hunger. It means with desire. I am earnest for God. This is not a take it or leave it bedtime, I'm saying some prayers. This is, I am earnestly calling upon God. You need to hear me. Second, seeking God in Hebrew also includes the idea of constancy. Constancy at all times, continuously. It might be in the morning. It might be then again in the afternoon. It might be again at night. It might even be at midnight. And maybe the Lord wakes you up in the middle of the night and you keep praying. And in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, you're earnest. There's a constance there. And then third, there is a genuineness, a genuineness from the heart, from the heart. When Jehoshaphat 
calls the nation to seek the Lord, what does that mean? It's Jehoshaphat saying, nation, we need to earnestly, constantly, genuinely call upon God because we know that God will help us. Interestingly, if we were doing kind of a Bible survey class, this would be a great time for me to say that one of the themes of the book of First and Second Chronicles is seeking the Lord. It's kind of a technical key word all through Chronicles that God's people seek the Lord and he answers them. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 10 to 12, we are to glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders that he has done. Maybe the key verse in all of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Here in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3, Jehoshaphat was alarmed and fearful and set his face to seek the Lord. Listen to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea 5, then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and until my people seek my face. So in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, Daniel 9, 3, I turn my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petition with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. What, what, What does this mean to seek God? It is a conscious choice to humbly cry out to God because, God, I need your power. God, I need your presence. God, I need your protection. And I need, I need your action. We might say seeking God is active, intentional, thoughtful, hope expectance. Hope expectance. And you know what? We ought to seek God because God has sought us. In Ezekiel 34, verse 12, the Lord says, I will seek out my sheep, which he has sought us out. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If he has sought you, let us respond to our great Savior by seeking him. Well, go back to the text. Look at 2 Chronicles 20. So Jehoshaphat is fearful. He turns his attention to seek the Lord. He gathers all Judah together to seek the Lord. Verse 5, notice what happens. See it in your Bible, verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly. I love that. That's the congregation. He's standing in the congregation of Judah. I mean, this is probably thousands and thousands of people. Standing in a congregation in the house of the Lord before the new court, here's what he prays, verse 6. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens, and are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. Notice prayer number one begins with praise. You alone are awesome. And then he prays in verse 7. 
Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel? And didn't you give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? He's remembering the book of Joshua. You gave us the promised land, just like you said. He praises God. He remembers what God has done. Look at verse 8. He prays, they they have lived in the land and they have built you a sanctuary, a temple here for your name. We've given you a temple, God. You are praised, you are worshipped here. Verse 9, should evil come upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we will cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and you will deliver us. We know that you'll hear us, God. We, we know that you are faithful. Now they get to the petition. Look at verse 10. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See, God, see how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He praises God. He remembers who God is and what God has done. He remembers the past deeds of God. He knows that they've built a temple for God. And then Jehoshaphat prays and he says, Lord, you've got to help us here because there's a huge multitude and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Notice verse 13. All Judah was standing before the Lord. This is the prayer meeting. Who's there with their infants and their wives and their children? This is the prayer meeting. Verse 18, just skip down to that. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping. I mean, can you picture it now? I mean, you've got the Jerusalem temple in this huge, massive court, and you've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands of people swarming this court from Judah. The king has called them to come. They're praying to God, and they're flat on their face before God. Men, women, boys, girls on the ground. Praying to God. Why? Because a great problem demands prayer and a great leader calls for prayer. This is why when we hear the word of God, we call upon God. We respond to God in prayer. We worship God in prayer. We intercede for one another in prayer. We pray for revival. We pray for protection. We plead with God. Jehoshaphat leads him. Because desperate times demand desperate prayer. Desperate times demand desperate prayer. Third, if you're taking notes, not only did we see a great problem demands prayer, and then we saw, second of all, a great leader calls for prayer. Now let me give you the third heading, and I want you to jot this down and come to it, and you hold God to his word here. Number three, a great God answers prayer. 
a great God answers prayer. This is this is awesome. Now, you got to get the story of what happens. Verse 14. So they're all standing before the Lord. Infants, wives, children, King Jehoshaphat. They're calling upon God. They don't know what to do, but their eyes are looking to the Lord. Now, verse 14. What's God going to do? Then, verse 14. In the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of God comes upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. So here's a Levite, a priest, who gets a message from the Lord. He's acting like a prophet to give it to the people. Verse 15. He said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Here's what God says to you. Don't fear. Don't be afraid because of the great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Christian, maybe you need to hear that as well. The battle's not yours. What's going on at your work? What's going on in our culture? What's going on in your family? What's going on in your life? It's not ultimately yours. It's God's. Tomorrow, verse 16, you need to go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in the battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear. Don't be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let me make sure I got this straight. You're telling me to go to the battle line and we're not going to fight? That we need, to, we need to go and march our way to the battle, to the front lines, and we station ourselves and we just watch the battle? Is that, is that, did I hear you clearly? Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bows with his head and face to the ground, all Judah and the inhabitants with him. Verse 19, the Levites and the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So verse 20, they go to bed, they wake up early in the morning, they go out to the wilderness of Tekoa, and when they go out, Jehoshaphat stood and he said, listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And as they went out before the army and they said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of the Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Hold on. They turned on one another. So you're just going to the battle line and you're just singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. That's your battle cry song. And all the other nations turn against one another. The king says, don't be afraid. Trust the Lord. I know it seems a little crazy and a little impossible. This is not typical warfare. But trust the Lord. 
Verse 24, Judah came out to the lookout on the wilderness. They looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one escaped. 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. What a God. What a God. I mean, here's what we learn. God answers prayer. They're seeking God. They're calling upon God. They're seeking the face of God. They're fasting. Jehoshaphat leads the nation to pray, and God answers in the most remarkable way. It's like in Genesis chapter 24, when Isaac's servant went and prayed for a wife for his master. And before he was even done praying, God answered. It's like in Acts 12, which I read briefly earlier, when Peter was in jail and the church had gathered to pray for his release. And God did it. It's even in Philippians 1, when Paul believed, writing in jail, but he believed that he would be released from jail through the prayers of the believers. Do you know that God answers prayer? Let me just give you one verse. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. I mean, church family, do you see what's going on here? Do you see that desperate times demand desperate prayer? Do you see how a great problem demands prayer? And a great leader calls for prayer. And now a great God is answering prayer. And they're just singing their way to the battle line. And then all the enemies turn on one another. The victory is won. God gives them the victory. Desperate times call for desperate prayer. Severe times demand seeking the Lord. Now, there is, there is in the Bible, there's private prayer. Private prayer is very important. We all can excel still more at that. Whatever season of life, place you are in your prayer life, we can all grow in our private prayer life. Matthew 6 teaches us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And then there's family worship prayer. Jeremiah 10, 25, God commands the fathers to lead their families in prayer. Genesis 12, Abraham does this as well. And then there's a corporate gathering of prayer where the church gathered praise the prayers. Acts 2, 42, the church gives themselves to the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to the prayers. But then there's the prayer meeting. Then there's that time when we must seek the Lord like this. Like Jehoshaphat saying, we we, we are in big trouble. And there's something big going on and it's about to come and destroy us. And God, we, we need your help. I want to flesh this out a little bit and talk about something that the book of Acts refers to a lot as the prayers of the saints, the prayer meeting of the saints. 
In Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul is sailing from the city of Miletus. In verse 4, after looking up the disciples in this new city where they landed in the city of Tyre, they were there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, they're after you. You're going to die there. Our days were ended there. We left and started on our journey. And then we all, with the wives and the children knelt down on the beach and prayed, Acts 21.5, and then we said farewell to one another. This is fervent prayer. God, we need you. God, we're desperate for you. God, there's something bigger than we can handle. And God, we, we need you. We're seeking the face of God. For the time that remains, I want to take the narrative of 2 Chronicles 20 and seek to bring this home to you and me today and talk about seeking the Lord together, seeking the Lord together. I agree with this pastor, and I know you would as well. He wrote, as a pastor, I'm concerned at how many Christians have so much energy for the things of the world. We'll drive across town for our kids to go to piano lessons and take them to sports practice, but oftentimes we can have very little energy for the things of God. Each day, he says, we have to deny ourselves. I mean, Jesus told us, he writes, to take up our cross and to follow him. Every day we've got to seek first the kingdom of God. But why is it that once a month or once a week, We find it hard to meet together to seek the Lord corporately. I mean, for all the gospel-centered talk about this and that and this and that church and this and that book, as well as many books that are gospel-centered, why has corporate prayer seeking the face of God fallen on hard times? What could we ever do that could be more important than praying together? That's a good word for all of us, every single one of us. And as a pastor, I get it. We could talk about evangelism, and we're instantly convicted. We could talk about prayer, and we're instantly convicted. We all are, because we can all grow in these areas in our Christian life. I want to give you just a brief sampling of men of God who have talked about the need for the church to gather together to pray. Vance Havner said, the thermometer of a healthy church is its prayer meeting. Hey, how's your church doing? Great, look at our numbers. No, 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 he says, the prayer meeting. How's the prayer meeting? J.B. Johnson said, the prayer meeting furnishes a very accurate, discriminating test of character. The real, live, growing Christian loves the prayer meeting. But the person who is spiritually dead does not have any delight in seeking the face of God. John Piper said, therefore, there is power in church-wide prayer because, I love this, the more people there are praying for the spiritual life of the church, the more thanksgiving there will be when God answers the prayer. 
Do you hear that? I mean, it's one thing to pray individually and see God answer. Praise the Lord for it. But when the church meets together and we pray together for a need and then God answers, then there are giving of thanks by everyone. Derek Prime says, Christians who neglect corporate prayer, it's like we're soldiers who leave our frontline comrades in the battle. Leonard Ravenhill said the true man of God is heartsick. He's grieved at the worldliness of the church. Did you hear that? The worldliness of the church. He's grieved at the tolerance of sin in the church. He's grieved at the prayerlessness in the church. He is disturbed that the church prayer no longer pulls down the strongholds of the devil. Spurgeon. Spurgeon said... Christian, go home. Go home and say to your pastor, Sir, we must have more prayer. Urge the people to more prayer. Have a prayer meeting, even if you have to have it all by yourself. And if you are asked by somebody, how many people came to your prayer meeting? You can always say four. And the Christian said four. Spurgeon said, well, sure. Sure. There's myself, and then there's God the Father, and there's God the Son, and then there's God the Holy Spirit. There's four of us. We must have an outpouring of real devotion, or else what is to become of many of our churches? Samuel Chadwick was the discipler of Leonard Ravenhill. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep the church from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies or prayerless work or prayerless religion. Satan laughs at our toil. He laughs at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Ravenhill said, why do we as a church in America not see revival? Why do we not have revival in America? And he says, because we're content to live without it. We want to have the attitude of Jehoshaphat, don't we? We've got to seek the Lord. We've got to seek the Lord. We've got to seek the Lord because desperate times demand desperate prayer. We are living in times when there are laws being put in place that will put people like me and you into jail pretty quick. When when it will be illegal to call homosexuality a sin, to tell people that they're wrong and that they're believing a lie, that they must repent and believe the gospel. We are living in desperate times. You say, Pastor Jeff, why do we gather to pray? What are the reasons for the Wednesday night prayer meeting? Well, Number one, it reminds us that our God is God. I'm not God. You're not God. We don't determine what goes on. God is God. Number two, it reminds us that salvation is in God's hands. Oh, Lord, I pray for the salvation of my son or my daughter or my father or my mother. Or I pray for the salvation of my coworker or my neighbor or my loved one. I pray for their salvation. We, we pray together, reminding us that we can't change the heart, but God can. 
Why do we gather to pray? Because it reminds us that we are not our own. I was telling my kids today, we were having family worship, preparing for worship service, and just reminded them, I want my kids to know that prayer is important. I want them to know that the prayer meeting is important. I want them to know that corporate worship is important. I want them to know that the meeting of God's people together is important. It's not just something that Pastor Jeff has to say, but it's something that I want all of us to know and to believe and to hold on to together. We we want our kids to know that they're not the center of this world. God is. And let's just be honest. If we're going to go to the prayer meeting, it requires self-denial. Sometimes we don't feel like it. But that's good. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. There's something so wonderful that unites us together as a family when we pray. Isn't there? The devil hates to see the people of God pray. Prayer is a means of grace. Did you hear that? Prayer is a God-given means of strengthening you in your prayer life and in your Christian life. Praying together reminds us that we are lights in this world and we've got to hold forth the word of truth because if we don't, who's going to do it? God even tells us in the Bible... Jot this down and you can, you can chase this later. But God, the sovereign, unmoved God, listen carefully, is moved when people pray. He's moved, 2 Chronicles 33, 2 Samuel 24. God loves to answer corporate prayer so that we could corporately give thanks to God. Oh, we, we, could, we could go through list by list by list of how God has provided for many of you here. We've prayed for jobs. We've prayed for people who have moved here and for living situations. We, we could go on and on with how God has answered prayer in our midst. And we give thanks to God for it. Those are reasons why we pray. Well, what do we pray for? What's the content? You say, Pastor Jeff, so that's the reasons, but what's the content? What should we pray for? Well, we don't always just sort of take prayer requests. Not that that's a bad thing. That's good to do. But what we choose to do in our prayer meeting is pray for three things. Number one, we want to pray for the glory of God. That's an upward prayer. We want God to be glorified. Number two, we want to pray for the blessing on the church. That's, that's inward Oh, God, grow your church. Oh, God, strengthen us. Oh, God, fortify us. Oh, God, we have this going on. We have that going on. Lord, help us. And then third, we pray for the conversion of the ungodly. That's outward. So we have upward. We want the glory of God. We pray inward. We want the church to be established and growing. And then we pray outward for the conversion of the lost. Upward, inward, outward. By the way, that's going to be the format of our prayer meeting this Wednesday night. But, but, but why? You say, you say, Jeff, I get it, and I'm on board with this, and I see what Jehoshaphat does in 2 Chronicles 20, but, but why is there a decline in the prayer meeting? I mean, why are there so many churches that don't pray? Why is it so hard to pray? 
Ravenhill said, the crying sin of the church is her laziness after God. How much do I want God? How much do you want God? How much do we want God? It's it's hard. We get it. We understand it. Why is there such a decline in the gathering of believers to pray? Well, we're busy. We're a busy people. Number two, misplaced priorities, self-confidence, formalities, kind of always praying the same old thing the same way every time. Little faith, oh, we're praying for revival. I mean, is is God really going to do it? We're praying for our president to be converted. Is God really going to do it? We, we, We sometimes have little faith and we have impatience. We pray, and then we don't see God immediately answer, and then sometimes we just kind of give up and quit. But yet God calls us to tarry in prayer, to stay up in prayer, to take hold of God, Isaiah says, to wrestle with God like Jacob did, to prioritize prayer because prayer is work, prayer is labor. And let's just be reminded of something. Prayer is not just preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. It does prepare us, no doubt, for difficult times in life. But prayer, so vital. It is here in prayer that the Christian life and the Christian battle is waged. And you know what? We could hear all of this and you and I could hear the call to pray and seeking God together in prayer. And we, we, we might, by the loving work of the Holy Spirit, feel convicted. We do. We all do. Hear me. Thanks be to God that even when we have neglected to pray, we have a merciful, tender, gracious Savior who has not neglected to pray for us. This is not about me and you saying, you've got to come to every night of the week prayer meeting. We we need to be realistic. We understand that. There's things going on. This is not Pastor Jeff saying you've got to be at every activity that the church offers and you better be there. That's not at all what I'm saying. But we need to remember desperate times demand desperate prayer. And even when we fail to pray, he doesn't fail to pray for us. Right now in heaven, the Savior is pleading his merits for you. He's interceding for you. We read it in Romans 8. The Spirit of God is interceding for us as well. It's like when we gather to pray, it's like God is our loving Father, and he invites all of us into his kitchen, and he says, open all the cabinets, all the cabinets, and take all that you want. That's how gracious our God is. He doesn't hold anything back. He calls us to come. He invites us to come. He bids us to come. And he says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Here's all my power. It's available to you. Ask for it. Ask for it. We gather to pray. It glorifies our God. It gladdens the saints. It furthers missions. 
It shows our humility. It enhances our devotion. It proves our dependence upon God. So I do want to give an unashamed call to all of us to prioritize the prayer meeting. It is important to seek the Lord together. And there's travels and there's illness. We understand that doesn't need to be Jeff's law that you need to abide by. But it's hearing the word of God and seeing the testimony of the word of God and the invitation of a powerful father. And he says, come, come, seek me. Come and knock at my door and and I'll give and I'll hear and I'll answer and I'll provide. Why? Why? Well, when we pray, we meet with God. When we pray, we grow in humility. When we pray, we express our trust together. When we pray, our spiritual life is uniquely strengthened. When we pray, it unifies us with our church family. When we pray, it teaches the children how they can learn to pray. When we pray together as a church, it refocuses us midweek on God. When we pray, it expresses our desire for God's power and his glory and his work. For a sin-hungry culture, we need a prayer-hungry church. You're in Chronicles. I want you to take your Bible. Just turn to the right briefly. We'll call this to a, a close here in a moment. Go to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2. Now, here's the book of Joel. As you're turning there, Joel's only three chapters. Chapter 1 is about a locust plague that happened. And the prophet sees the disaster, and he says, oh, that was really bad, a locust plague. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2. You better get ready. That locust plague was nothing compared to the future day of the Lord that God is going to bring in the future. What do you do in desperate times when God is going to bring judgment on a wicked world? Look at Joel chapter 2, and we look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, and relenting of evil. Now look at verse 15. Notice what the prophet wants the people to do. Everybody see this. There's eight commands. Verse 15. Blow the trumpet. Verse 15. Consecrate a fast. Next. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Next. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, gather the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Even put a pause on wedding plans for a minute. Why? Verse 17. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and don't make your inheritance a reproach. What's the point? Why all these commands? We need to meet, gather, and seek the Lord. Because it is the case that sometimes assembling together can be more important than any other human activity that we could do. And church family, let me just encourage you for a minute. There are so many venues where prayer goes on here. 
We have the Wednesday night prayer meeting. We have the Friday morning men's studies where we often pray for one another before we look into the word. We have the Monday night prayer at Dorothy's home, the care groups where the groups gather to pray. We have CFBC interaction where you're praying with one another individually and in small groups before and after church. On Sundays, there's a group that meets at one o'clock downstairs to pray for the worship service and on and on we could go with ways in which prayer is already going on. So, so this is not, this is not going on here and we need to start praying. This is, look at what God is doing in our midst. Let's grow even more. Let's seek to be faithful in the main thing that we need to focus on. And yet I wonder if there's someone out there and you say, you know, Jeff, I'm busy. I hear what you're saying. I agree with you. I give a hearty amen. And I'm busy. We are. I came across the biography of Leonard Ravenhill. We are all busy. He has some helpful examples for us. The biographer, Mac Tomlinson, tells the story of how Leonard Ravenhill would lead a Friday night prayer meeting in a house in Texas. Couples would meet together after work. They would drive for hours sometimes each way to go to the prayer meeting. Sometimes they would go to the prayer meeting, drive after work. They would arrive there, have the prayer meeting, and drive home, arrive middle of the night. Sometimes there were 80 people meeting together in a living room, crammed together. Here's the format of the prayer meeting that Ravenhill led in the 1900s. They would start at 7 o'clock, and there'd be a brief welcome, and Ravenhill would read a scripture, and then he would pray 10 minutes, worshiping the Lord, adoring him. And then they would sing a couple songs, and then Ravenhill would preach for an hour. After he would preach for an hour, then he would give directions for the prayer meeting. Why? We need to hear from God through the word, then we can respond to God in prayer. Ravenhill would say, in our prayer meeting, you pray whatever is on your heart, but make it serious and something not self-centered. Be brief and keep it to the point. So, man after woman after man after woman, sometimes boys and girls would pray. They might be short, brief, fervent, passionate, sometimes even with tears. And the praying was free, zealous, genuine, and with depth, but always controlled by the Spirit. It was always edifying. After Ravenhill preached for an hour, they would pray for an hour. It wasn't just praying the same old prayers with the same old words, just like they do every single week. It was genuine praying in their praying. And here's what Ravenhill would say to churches. He would say, could a, could a sailor sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let the patient die? Could a fireman sit idle and let men burn and not give him a hand? Could the church sit comfortably in Zion with the world all around us going to hell? Church family, desperate times demand desperate prayer. Let's learn from the great example of Jehoshaphat. 
That when there are things in our life, in our city, in our nation, in our world, in our church that are ahead of us, and we think this is way bigger than we can handle like Jehoshaphat. Let's gather together to seek the Lord in fervent prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you. We praise you and we want to seek you. And we know that when we seek you, your word says we will find you. We remember, O oh God, how you have delivered Israel through prayer. You delivered Peter out of jail through prayer. You have delivered so many in church history through prayer. You have provided in this congregation through prayer. So God, we plea that you would help us to grow in not only our individual prayer lives and in our family prayers, but Lord, in our corporate prayer meeting. God, forgive us when we have not prioritized prayer as we ought. Oh Lord, would you mold us more into the image of Christ where we would prioritize prayer. Would you sanctify us, O oh Lord, and help us by your mercy to pray, to seek the face of God, to be earnest, to be constant, to be heartfelt, to be genuine in seeking you in prayer. We resolve, O oh God, to stand up for Jesus to stand in your grace and to advance forward on our knees as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.